that will give rise to insight. So generally when you're on a retreat, then once you develop a certain momentum, then uh, usually there's a peak period within each day where you know that's, uh, that's the place where it's, it's getting most focused, more the most energetic or the, um, the most peaceful. And at that point, then it's very beneficial to turn one's attention to a theme of investigation. So the most common theme of investigation um, in the forest tradition is to begin by investigating the body. Essentially, we, you want to investigate or contemplate all of the five khandhas, the body being the first, um, then uh, you've got uh, uh, so the mental khandhas, feeling or vedana, um, you've got sanya, perception and memory, you've got sankharas, which are mental formations and consciousness itself, especially sense consciousness. The body is easiest to start with because it's the most concrete. Uh, the mental khandhas are uh, very uh, fleeting. So with the body, at least, there's uh, an illusion of continuity from one hour to the next. It seems pretty much the same, whereas our mind from one hour to the next can change radically. From one moment to the next, it can change radically. So the meditation that we did this morning where we um, move the awareness into the body and then systematically take it apart put it back together again. Now you can do this even within one meditation. You can uh, reach the point where that's about as peaceful as the meditation is going to get. And then each meditation at that spot, you do it three times. You go through and you t 
take the whole body apart and put it back together again. Take it apart, put it back together again. Take it apart, put it back together again. And that becomes both a theme for concentration and for insight. It's a very good concentration practice because it's something that's very systematic. You need sustained uh, attention and awareness to do that. It's a theme for insight because you're working with one of the five khandhas. And you are informing and transforming the perception of our body. So the point of, of insight practice, investigation, contemplation, is to try to understand reality just as it is. We're not trying to convince ourselves of anything in particular. But we say, okay, what is it that I identify with as myself? Well, body is part of it. So, well, let's try to really understand the body. What's a human body? Just come at it from that. You know, very simple. It doesn't have to be highly theoretical. And so you come in and say, okay, well, it's a human body. Well, um, see, in the present moment, there are, my general perception of a human body is what we see on the surface. And, um, you know, it's kind of what, how I perceive human bodies. Um, we see uh, hair on the top of our heads, hair in the body, skin, see fingernails, toenails, see our teeth. It's only when we start to think a bit deeper that you know, this perception is actually a little bit limited because if that's all that consisted of a human body was skin and nails and teeth and hair, um, it'd be kind of a amorphous mess. There wouldn't really be much to it. Uh, it'd be very difficult to do walking meditation, for example, if all you had was skin. But through, uh, through contemplation and visualization, saying, well, what's actually underneath the skin? What's holding the skin up? Say, well, we can go through and, and uh, to whatever degree we understand anatomy, then we can go through and look at the body. And that gives a, um, I think, more, a more realistic perception of our own body. It's a bit like uh, if you've never done any engine work on a car, then generally you look at the car and you know, if it's nice and shiny on the outside, then it's a good car, right? If, you, if um, you've trained yourself to do mechanical work on the car and you know how cars work and, you, and you've spent time going underneath the hood and taking it apart and putting it back together again and, and you understand how it all works, then when you look at a car, it's like you, you, the perception is informed by all that other knowledge as well. That the car is not just the shiny shell on the surface. It's, it's all this, what really makes the car special is all the stuff underneath. That gives it momentum and power. So body contemplation is a bit like that. 
kind of like Dharma mechanics. You know, we go in, take things apart, figure it out, put it back together in the right way. And then, uh, and you don't have to try to convince yourself of anything. You, know, you don't have to try to convince yourself, oh, the body's this way, the body's that way, um, oh, I shouldn't be attached to the body, oh, the body's beautiful, or the body's not beautiful. Again, those are just a whole other layer of perceptions that we project. Just try to get as close to reality as possible. Admittedly, you know, we're visualizing. So it's not like we're actually using a, you know, a camera to go inside of our body. But most of us have enough knowledge of anatomy to kind of figure out that, yeah, whatever whatever bones are there and, and flesh, etc. And we kind of get an idea just by, you know, feeling, you know, feel our body and kind of get a sense of what's in there. Now, in doing that, you know, going backwards and forwards, then you might find that one particular part of the body stands out very clearly. It may be a tooth, it may be a rib, it may be your heart. Um, for most people, it is usually a bone or something very concrete. And then, if you want, you can actually take that as a meditation object and then you, you just focus on that. And that can be, again, beneficial both for developing samadhi and for developing insight. For Generally, for developing samadhi, if the meditation object is stable and unchanging, then that's the samadhi aspect of it. But then, what you can do is, even if you've just visualized a rib, and you've gotten really good at visualizing a rib, and some, for some reason, the mind just likes to stay focused on the visualization of a rib, a rib, and can do that, then uh, what you can do at some point is, is then visualize that rib decaying with the effects of time. Even our bones will eventually decay, turn to dust, return to the elements of the earth. And doing that in a you know, kind of non-intellectual way, gives our, our mind, gives our heart more information. Usually what information we have is what we pay attention to. And, that, and we base our decisions in life on what information we have. And even if we're trying to live a wise life, we can only make our decisions based on what information we have, and our information is based on what we pay attention to. So if we're only paying attention to certain parts of reality, then that will tend to skew our understanding of reality, and then we, we don't see the whole picture, and then sometimes what we do actually leads to suffering rather than happiness, and we wonder, well, what happened? I mean, it's just like when we take a bite of food. If we just take, um, if we just pay attention to the first part of the bite only, and where the sense hit is, then 
we're ignoring actually probably most of the whole bite. And so we don't see the whole thing in perspective, and then we get a, a certain perception of what eating is and, and what it's not. So there are many things in life that are like that, and the body is one. If uh, we're kind of programmed to focus on certain parts of the body, and and perceptions can be quite limited in that area. So in order to uh, give ourselves uh, like a, a full picture, then we intentionally try to um, broaden that scope of investigation and say, well, let's, let's try to look at everything, really see what's there. And when we do that, then what we call um, insight or wisdom starts to develop. And it's not... Uh, it's not like insight is thinking, right? It's, uh, insight is more like just um, clear seeing, seeing something clearly that we may not have seen before, even though it may have been right in front of our eyes uh, our whole life. If we, we, we just may pay attention to it enough that we see it clearly for the first time and go, wow, well, I didn't realize. And you know, little moments like that start to accumulate. And then they, they collect in, in a, a body of wisdom. So Buddhist wisdom is not based on how much we've read or how much we've memorized or how well we can debate. It's based on these you know, very simple understandings of, of life. Something like contemplating the body is really good to cut through doubt. If you find yourself just you know, wondering, should I practice this way or should I practice this that way? Should I be a Buddhist or should I be a Christian? You know, should I be a layperson or should I be a nun? or whatever, you know, there's all sorts of things we can doubt about, or should I follow my breath, or should I practice forgiveness, or should I contemplate my ribs, or what should I do? <laughs> you know, and if there's too much doubt, then you don't, we don't get anywhere. So it's important to have enough of uh, just a, a systematic way of approaching things to say, Okay, well, I'm just going to try this. And uh, the Buddha's way of giving us this, the Dhamma, is like, here, these, these are the tools. You don't have to blindly believe anything. These, these are the tools that worked for me. Um, I have achieved, now this is the Buddha talking, he has achieved full complete purification, liberation, and enlightenment. And he's giving us these tools. And then it's up to us. Say, okay, well, we can pick up these tools and try it out. Like, test it out. Find out for ourselves. 
don't just believe that the Buddha was enlightened. You don't really know for sure until you've experienced something similar. So well, maybe he was enlightened, maybe not. I better find out for myself. And that's the attitude that I think the Buddha would praise. So something like contemplating uh, the body, it's very good for cutting through doubt. Say, well, let's get down to the basics of life. We want to look at life, let's get down to the basics. All right, body. We got a body. That much we can be relatively sure about. Whether we like our body, we don't like our body, well, it's not really our business. But there is a body. And then uh, we can be relatively sure that we were born. We may not remember the day, uh, but we can be probably pretty sure that we were, we were born at some point. Um, and uh, there are little <coughs> photographs to kind of prove that we used to be small and pink. <laughs> Right? And, um, and now we're big and pink. <laughs> and, uh, and we can be relatively sure that we'll probably get uh, older. I mean, either we'll get older or, or something else will happen. But uh, we can, you know, if, if we don't encounter a, some accident in the near future, then we can be relatively sure that we'll get older and judging from what happens from other people that we've seen, um, there's a certain kind of process that happens. Um, you know, the face changes, I don't know, lines start appearing where there didn't used to be lines and gray hair start appearing where there used to be dark hair or blonde hair and um, I don't know, can't uh, run up and down hills as fast as we could maybe 10, 15 years ago. And uh, so there's this interesting phenomena called aging. And again, I mean, aging has a bad reputation. <laughs> well, there's nothing really bad about it. Right? That's right. Okay. <laughs> Especially when you shave that gray hair off. <laughs> Look a lot younger. <laughs> so aging happens. I mean, even when we're children, aging is happening. And uh, well, usually what we mean by aging is when, um, you know, we... we the energy of the body starts to really decline and um, yeah the gray hairs and the lines and all start to set in and then uh, usually what happens to a human body like most of the human bodies that have ever existed on on the planet have died now there's no guarantee that we're gonna die um, however, there's a high percentage chance that we'll die as well, just based on statistics. <laughs> <laughs> and so, 
And so this is the predicament that we find ourselves in with the human body. It's constantly changing. Uh, we generally identify with it, and we may generally identify with it um, as it used to be. <laughs> like identify with a body that um, maybe existed 10 years ago. <laughs> but anyways, however we you know, identify with it, then uh, it does seem to have uh, its limit in how long it can exist. And then at some point, um, it just seems to run out of energy and it collapses and and then we call that death and something radically changes there. I mean, the body's constantly changing as we're living but uh, when this thing happens that we call death uh, something even um, more changes. In Western society we're very good at hiding death. One of the privileges of being in Asia even in modern times, is that you have the opportunity to um, see what happens to a human body. You know, after that point of death, after the point of uh, consciousness seems to have left the body, it's no longer animated. Uh, it's interesting, you know, when, when a body is alive, somehow it seems to have a kind of a glow around it that you can't really see, but as soon as a person's dead, you kind of know that they're not sleeping. Even even though they may just have died um, an hour ago. A human body that's, that's sleeping still has, I don't know, on one, in one way it looks exactly the same. But in another way, somehow that, that uh, invisible glow is gone around it. And so that's interesting just to contemplate you know, what that is. And then it, it doesn't take very long for the body to um, start to return to the elements. Um, get ready for the compost heap. And you know like in um, village life in Thailand traditionally they will keep the body in the home for three to five days and during that time the the village monks will come in and do chanting at least once maybe a few times and that is in many ways it's a nice custom certainly the family gets used to the transition period. The, you know, grandma or grandpa or mom and dad are, are still there, uh, you know, in a coffin, in a box, but they're still there in the room. And I think also it's good for the, the deceased because having spoken to many meditation masters about this, they'll say generally the consciousness of the deceased person will still uh, hang around the body for a while. Even once the body's dead, um, like the, the mental khandhas, 
um, the you know the consciousness, um, the feelings, the perceptions, the memories, all of that can still be very much um, alive in that sense, or, or having carried on in a way which is quite similar as it was a few days earlier, except that it doesn't have the body. So it's good for the deceased to have the body around a while and to get used to the fact that, oh, what happened? I didn't wake up. <laughs> oh, bummer, I didn't wake up. <laughs> I'm dead. There I am. God, I had so much stuff to do, too. <laughs> and here I am, I'm dead. God, I, my, my worthless sons will never take care of it. <laughs> That's why people hang out as ghosts. That's what happens. Because they're still attached to the stuff that's left undone. And they're kind of hanging around the house saying, why don't you guys take care of that stuff? It's like, clean your room. Or who's looking after my workshop? <laughs> so after, say in rural Thailand, after a few days, you know, the weather's uh, fairly warm and humid. And so by the time they bring it to the monastery, uh, the human body is um, its a bit ripe. And they'll, generally they won't use, you know, anything, any kind of preservatives. So, uh, by the time they do bring it to the monastery for the cremation, then they have an open casket. Uh, everyone comes and looks at it, and you know, by that time, you know, the sense of blueness is setting in for sure. And uh, you know, there's a definite odor, the odor of death. But our monastery in Thailand, Wat Banana Chat, before it was a monastery, it was a cremation grounds. And one of the reasons why a forest still existed there and hadn't been cut down at the time was because it had been a cremation grounds for a long time. And because of that, all the local villagers knew that it was haunted. And so they were afraid to go in and cut down the trees. But then, about 30 years ago, some of Ajahn Chah's Western disciples went over there and put up their gloats and uh, were staying in the forest. And the local villagers were really impressed. Wow. They were waiting to see if the ghosts were going to kill them or not. <laughs> and, uh, and somehow, for some reason, these Western monks didn't even seem afraid of ghosts. And so that kind of impressed them. Um, it was probably the case that they just didn't believe in ghosts at the time. Or just weren't worried about things that they couldn't see. Anyways, those first uh, Western monks then um, brought up the idea in the mind of the villagers, hey, why don't we go to Ajahn Chah and ask him to have some Western monks stay here permanently, regularly. And so they did that, and then that was the beginning of uh, Wat Banana Chan. And that cremation ground 
still exists. The place where the, they burn the bodies still exists and uh, still right in the center of the monastery. And for the whole time that I was there, I guess about once, maybe twice a month, there would be cremations there. People would die in the village and bring the body in. And, and uh, there's kind of concrete steps and then on both sides and then a big open trough about a, a yard wide and a couple yards tall. And then they fill that with firewood and then put the casket on top and then you can walk up the stairs on both sides and, and look in the casket. And so generally the monks would do that first. And so that was already uh, something that were, I'd never seen before in Western society that, uh, you know, what a human body looks like a few days after it's died. And so we're given the time to go up there silently and, and have a look and contemplate. For the, the reason, it's just that you know, we're, we're studying the nature of life. And part of studying the nature of life is, is studying the nature of death, because death is just one more thing that happens to a living being. with the idea that, well, one day is probably going to happen to us, statistically speaking. <laughs> and uh, then after the monks were uh, finished looking at the body, then pretty much all the villagers would come up and look at it as well, friends, family, children as well. And so even the, the children would come in, you know, be looking in the box and casket and it wasn't like open casket viewing in in a western funeral parlor I mean some of those people look better dead than they ever did alive <laughs> nice dressed up in suits but you know in Thailand they had that feeling of being very realistic and from a very young age then the children just said oh and they were comfortable with the idea of death and the reality of death. It wasn't such a big deal. <coughs> then we'd light the fire, and now if, the casket is very thin, and so that burned away pretty quickly. And then uh, you know, it, it takes most of the night for a human body to burn through. It's amazing. Uh, and it's pretty powerful just to, to watch what happens to a human body on a pyre. And then the next morning, all that's left are ashes and some bone bits, and the relatives come and they sift through it all, and they pick out the bone bits, the parts that didn't burn completely, and put it in a jar, and then take that jar and... and intern it in the wall around the monastery with a little plaque, usually with a little picture. Because it's a brick wall all the way around the monastery, so they just kind of take out a few bricks, put the, uh, the bone bits in there, and then concrete it over with the plaque. And there you go, that's 
there's a human life. You end up as part of a wall. <laughs> well, it's better being thrown in the trash or thrown in a river or polluting something. You know, at least you're building something. You know, you're, you know. if I die, John, just build me into the cabin. <laughs> Inside, I work as insulation. <laughs> So this idea of understanding death, or thinking about death, contemplating it, looking at it, it's not necessarily a um, depressing thing. You can say, well, it's, it's morbid. Well, morbid just means that it's concerned with death. So in that sense, yes, it is morbid. But uh, it's not necessarily... Um, depressing, but it is interesting to see what it brings up in us. How, how at peace are we with the whole cycle of life? You know? It's a bit like the cycle of one bite of food. If we just look at the beginning or the exciting part or the youth part and we don't want to look at old age and death, then uh, we don't get a whole picture, a complete picture while we're living and then Suddenly we're old, or we're on our deathbed, and some people just aren't prepared for it. And they can experience fear and resistance and anger and you know all sorts of states of mind which aren't good to have in the dying process. So it's much better to contemplate and look at the whole process of getting old and dying uh, in advance. You know, we can imagine ourselves, kind of a, when you lie down tonight, you can imagine yourself, okay, here we go, this is it, my last breath, <coughs> and then what would it be like if you just died right then and there? Then the, the next morning, you don't make it to the first meditation. And then you're not there for the puja, and you're not there for the stretching, you know, the next meditation. By this time, Matt's getting a bit worried. And he's thinking, this lazy meditator, how dare they skip, just sleep in and skip the morning meditation. I'm going to go have a word with them. And then Matt goes out and finds them and, and, and sees all. Oh, um, they're dead. <laughs> it's a good. Ex they had a good excuse. <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. You got out of it this time, buddy. <laughs> but don't try it again, okay? All right. So, yeah. So, uh, can you imagine? just dying that that's kind of one way of of contemplating it and just imagining 
you know, with a, do you think the world will, world will be able to carry on without us? Hard to imagine. I think the world would be just fine, but you know there would be uh, certain ramifications with our friends and families, and um, you know it's interesting just to contemplate you know, what would happen, uh, or contemplate the process leading up to dying. If it really was like uh, your last day, and you knew it was your last day, the energy is running out. You kind of figure like, well, this is about it. We're getting close, and what would it feel like? And then, and then you've heard these stories of near-death experiences, and say, well, interesting. What might happen there in that whole process? We have a skeleton of a woman who used to be a supporter of the monastery many, many years ago, decades ago. And uh, she had a lot of suffering in her life, and then and she shot herself in the head. And then her husband donated the skeleton to the monastery, and it hangs in a glass case. You can still see the hole through the skull. But it's all put together as a skeleton that hangs there. And like uh, almost every forest monastery, there will be a skeleton there for contemplation, for the, the reason of saying, well, you know, what's a, where are the bones? How are the bones hooked together? What does it really look like inside? And so if you want to kind of um, sit there visualizing yourself as a skeleton, then uh, you kind of open your eyes and you know, investigate, look at the, uh, the skeleton of someone else, and then close your eyes and kind of imagine the same thing. Quite often, they'll, in these cases, there'll be a, a little saying in Thai, saying, I was once like you, and in the future, you'll be just like me. <laughs> <laughs> but Ajahn Piak, who I've mentioned a few times now, when he was a young monk, he used to go into the main meditation hall at Ajahn Chah's monastery late at night when no one else was around uh, so he could really study the, the bones in the skeleton. Really look at them closely, get a, a clear visual picture, and then visualize himself in that way. And then uh, he just took bones as his meditation object and became very good at seeing not just himself as bones, or the bones within himself, but also being able to see the bones in other people. And because his samadhi was so good, he, he could really visualize it very clearly. And then, for example, he'd go out an alms round, and every hand that put food into his bowl, uh, he, would, he would see it as, as uh, bones, see all the bones in the hand. And you know, if, uh, or if he'd see a face and he'd just see the bones, see the skull. And if there was one that he couldn't, then when he got back to the monastery, he'd really work on it. Until he could. <laughs> until he could, could make sure that he could see everyone as bones. 
And there was even uh, there was a, a famous story of was it? I think it was in the time the time of the Buddha. The story that I remember Ajahn Ben told about um, this um, this monk who was doing walking meditation and uh, doing bone contemplation, walking back and forth, back and forth, doing bone contemplation, and then there was this like marital dispute by someone in the village and this woman was running away with her husband or partner or um, I don't know whoever was chasing her and so she she ran away and uh, she kind of came upon this monk doing walking meditation in the forest and um, surprised and then ran off and then a few minutes later this guy came up and asked this monk, have you seen this woman? I'm looking for this woman. Did she run by here? And he said, a few minutes ago I saw some bones. <laughs> <laughs> so if you get really good at it, then just get, get down to the basics. So who was it that was asking the question uh, earlier today about how to live a celibate life, you know, as a layperson? There you go. <laughs> Just visualize everyone as bones. I tell you, that will really knock your love life dead out. <laughs> but while we're on retreat, however, it's worth experimenting with, with this type of meditation. Um, because we're getting, you know, past the midpoint of the retreat now. Now is the time where uh, whatever momentum you've gained through all this hard work of all of these days, building each day, building on the previous days, then you want to put that to work with with uh, contemplation. So you can try contemplating the body and try contemplating death. You know, see what that brings up see what relationship we have to the concept of death, see how peacefully we are with the possibility that someday we might die. So just the body in itself is, uh, is uh, a wealth of, of insight, of uh, area for developing insight. So give that a try. Focus all your samadhi energy into that and, and uh, fully go into it. And, uh, we still have a, a few days till the end of the retreat, so um, there'll be enough time to recover and, uh, and start seeing people with not just the bones anymore. You, know? <laughs> you, you have enough time to delve into it right now and then uh, see what happens. And by the end of the retreat, I'm sure you'll be able to kind of uh, get back to a, a normal frame of mind so you can drive home safely. Mm -hmm.